I'd like for you to turn to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. And I want to talk tonight about the question that's found in the 21st chapter of John's Gospel, beginning in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when, and Jesus is talking to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, this is Jesus talking to Simon Peter. When he had spoken this, he said to him, You follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper. You know who he's talking about. He's talking about the author of this gospel. He's talking about John. And said, He's the one who said, uh, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Here's the question. Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The question is, if I want him to live until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. Now I want to ask you a question. It's a very personal question, but I hope it's not offensive to anybody. I, I would never want to offend anyone. Um, it is really a question that was, is meant really to probe rather than to insult or to offend. Very personal question. Maybe hard for you to answer. When was the last time somebody looked you right in the eye and said, mind your own business? Perhaps you stuck your nose into somebody else's affair without their invitation, and you formed an opinion based upon just half of the knowledge you needed to form an opinion. And to add insult to injury, you begin to express that opinion around uh, the community and caused somebody hurt. And nobody had the nerve to come up to you and the courage to say, why don't you butt out and why don't you mind your own business? And this is the second question if somebody had said that to you, would you have minded your own business? It's a very popular practice among us, even Christians, and that is to, to, to push our way into someone else's life and to kind of mind their own business for them. I know a preacher one time who bought a new car and was scared to drive it afraid of what his church members would say. 
And he said, it took the longest for me to ever admit to anybody I had a new car. And finally he said, you know, after I told my wife and children to walk everywhere, you know, they wanted to go, he said, I finally had enough nerve to drive it to the church building and park it outside, but I was scared to death what somebody was going to say. The scripture calls a person who minds someone else's business for them a busybody. And there are two, at least two references in the New Testament. And it's interesting that each time it refers to somebody else being a busybody, it does it with, in connection with idleness. That is, you don't have enough time, you, you have too much time left on your hands, and you have to spend that time taking care of somebody else's business. That sound like anybody you know. Listen to what the scripture says. Don't criticize people and you'll not be criticized. For you will be judged by the way you criticize others. And the measure you give will be measured the measure you receive. And he goes on in that seventh chapter of the book of Matthew. Why look at the speck? of sawdust in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own. And how can you say, get the speck of sawdust out of your eye, out of when there is a plank in your own? And the Apostle Paul puts it like this, each was meant to bear the mistakes of others, for none of us is perfect. None of you should think of his own affairs alone, but should learn to see things from another's point of view. And listen to these familiar words from the epistle of James from a not-so-familiar translation. So also the tongue is a small thing, but what enormous damage it can do. A great forest can be set on fire by one tiny spark, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is full of wickedness and poisons every part of the body and can turn our whole lives into a blazing flame of destruction and disaster. What a statement about the tongue. Now what we're talking about tonight is accountability gone to seed. Accountability gone to seed is the worst form of legalism. How many people were we meant to please? Chuck Colson said he saw a sign in the president of Biola College's office that read like this. I do not have the secret, I do not know the secret of success, but I do know the secret of failure. Try to please everybody. That's the secret of failure. If I could do one thing tonight, I think it would be this. I would seal the lips of the petty and I would fix their eyes where they belong on Jesus and not on their brothers in the church. Now before we break this text apart, I want you to, to, to kind of remember this. That each one of us will stand before the judgment 
and give an account of his or her life alone. It's going to be pretty shocking when we stand before the judgment and the Lord does not look at me and say, Gerald, what about old so-and-so? What do you know about him? What can you tell me about him? But when I stand before the Bema and you stand before the Bema, we'll have him ask us, what about your life alone? Now the text, the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. This scene takes place on a seaside. These disciples have been on an emotional roller coaster. They have seen their Lord crucified, and they've heard word that He is raised, resurrected from the dead. They've spent all night fishing, and they've caught nothing. And in the morning hours, somebody on the shore hollers out to them, cast on the other side. And there is a, a word of authority in his word. So they cast their nets on the other side of the boat and they catch a load, almost sinks the boat. They recognize that it is the Lord. Simon Peter jumps overboard and swims to shore and they bring this catch, dragging it in, almost sinks the boat. And they're sitting there on the seashore and Jesus has a fire built and he's fixed a fish breakfast for them. Now I want you to get this scene. Here is this man with these awful wounds in his hand and side. He's their Lord, and they have seen him crucified just a few days before. And he's sitting around this fireside serving them a fish breakfast. And it's very, I mean, what do you say in a, what, what conversation could you, could you use there? Well, I mean, what would you say? And so the conversation must be kind of serene and, and quiet and hushed and, and muted. And all of a sudden Jesus begins to direct his conversation, his dialogue to one man. He had just as soon remained anonymous. Simon Peter. I have a feeling he wished he could have crawled under something. He's the guy that denied the Lord three times. And now he's confronting him here on this morning around this fire. It's kind of like that day that you showed up in class unprepared, you know, and you just knew the teacher was going to call on you. And so you're sitting back there kind of hunkered down behind somebody. And all of a sudden the teacher just points right at you and says, okay, Mr. Smith, would you give us an explanation of this poem that we've, we've just had as our assignment? And all of a sudden you're brought out in the open face to face, not just with Jesus, but before everybody there. And so this conversation is directed by, at Simon Peter. Now you need to remember something about these disciples. They were extremely competitive. And there was this conversation that went on all the time about who was the greatest and this, this competitiveness existed between these men, Simon Peter being the leader, and each one of them had a special thing that he could do. Every one of them had something about which they were skilled. And here's this failure. 
this man who had failed, not just Jesus, but the rest of them, and as Jesus begins to engage him one-on-one and ask three questions about his spiritual love life, he not only felt the gaze of Jesus piercing him, but the gaze of everybody else around him fixed on him. I mean, all the guys were looking at Simon thinking, yeah, mm-hmm. You're the man who makes all the boast. You're the person who's made all the claims. And you're the man who's failed. Perhaps there's some of you here tonight who feels just like that. I mean, not only do you feel like you have failed the Lord, but everybody else knows about it. And you just sense that what you have done, everybody has made a part of their conversation. That's exactly how he felt. And there was this need there in Simon's own experience and and there was this need of the Lord to help this man come to a place where he could begin again. Like a poet said, oh, I wish there was some land of beginning again where all of our heartaches and all of our mistakes and all of our foolish pride could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never picked up again. Well, Christianity is the highway to the land of beginning again, and Jesus is leading him toward that land of beginning again. And he's saying, in essence, to Simon, Simon, we need to, get, we need to confront this issue so you can have a fresh and brand new start. Here's how he did it. He said, Simon, when you were young, you were free to go wherever you wanted, do just about anything you wanted to do. You were pretty much in control. But when you get old, things are going to change. You're going to be carried by somebody to a place you wouldn't choose to go yourself. You're going to be out of control and in somebody else's control. And he was talking to Simon about the kind of death he would die. And it was true that if tradition is correct that Simon was carried by others. In fact, tradition has it that Simon himself was crucified and that he chose not because he was didn't feel worthy to be even die like Jesus. He chose to be crucified upside down. And so he was telling Peter, some of, one of these days, they're going to take you out and they're going to crucify you. And when he said those words, he said immediately after that, he said to Peter, it's in the singular, you, singular, follow me get the picture that the only two people really out on that seaside were Jesus and Simon Peter and he's headed to the land of beginning again here's the key you follow me now if you've ever been in a city where there's you know you're gonna maybe travel across the city or like we used to do when we were going on our mission trips we were kind of in a caravan Somebody says, now, I know how to get across the city. I know where we're going. You just follow me. 
That's not as easy as it sounds, especially in the city. But one thing for sure, if you're following somebody to the destination, where are your eyes? They're fixed, you're fixed, you've you got your eyes on that car in front of you, that van. And you got them glued there knowing that if you don't keep your eyes on that van and you lose sight of that van, it, you may make a wrong turn and get lost in spite of everything. And right in that heavy traffic, you got your eyes fixed on that van knowing if I follow that van, I get where I need to go. And so Jesus is saying to Simon, you keep your eyes fixed right on me. And just at that time, Simon, look at this, verse 20, turns around. He's already made a wrong, wrong turn He's already taken his eyes off of Jesus and he saw this disciple whom Jesus loved. He saw John behind him. And he said, well, what about him? Now, when I was looking over this, I got to thinking, you know, wondering in my mind, why did he pick out John? Everybody must have been following. Every, all of the disciples were there. Why did he happen to, you know, why was he singling out John? I think I know the answer. I think Simon Peter understood, knew that John and Jesus had something special between them. He was the one that was called the one whom Jesus loved, he was the one who leaned his head back on Jesus' breast. And Peter knew that there was a special relationship that, he, that Jesus had with John. And I frankly believe that Peter was jealous of that. I want you to look at something interesting that I just happened to see not long ago, found in the 18th chapter of John's Gospel. It's verse 15. Look at this. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, as, and so was another disciple. That other disciple was John. Now that disciple, that is John, was known to the high priest. You ever seen this before? The high priest knew John. and entered in with Jesus into the court of the high priest. He had privy in where the high priest was. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. And it was when Peter was brought into the court that Peter denied his Lord. Now I have a feeling that Peter was not only envious of the relationship that John had with Jesus, but he was a little bit miffed, to say the least, had a little bit of resentment to the fact that John was partly responsible for having him in the court where he denied the Lord, and we all love to shift blame on someone. Now I'm saying... Jesus has just told me, I'm going to be taken out and crucified. 
And here's a guy that walks behind that I'm wondering now, what about this guy? Is Jesus going to let him on? Scot-free with no suffering? A.B. Bruce says this, Jesus refers to him as if he were a busybody, meddling with matters for which he had no concern, and busybodiedness was one of Peter's faults. He was fond of looking and managing other people, even the Lord himself at Caesarea Philippi. Coming from the mouth of Peter, this question was the worst kind of envy. You told me your plan for my life. What about his life? And what about your plan for him? And Jesus said, mind your own business. I wonder if our Lord could speak to us tonight how many times he would look at us and say, that's not your business. You know what I'm talking about? You know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so are having problems in their marriage and they're still singing in the choir? Or Lord, you know, I, you know Claude Klutz that I went to school with went back to my 20th anniversary at school anniversary and reunion, found out that Claude Klutz is making $2 million a year the damn way. <laughs> and I'm just barely getting by, and you know what a klutz klutz is? Or I'm out here, you know, slaving my life away and getting nowhere and suffering, and the people who are not serving you seems to, seem to get along just fine. And the Lord says, that is not your concern. Now I want you to get these lessons and then we're out of here. It's very, very important, I think, to wind this up with these lessons. The first is this. One of the most important lessons you and I have to learn is to take our eyes off other people and tend to our own business, doing what God meant for us to do and be. It's a great day in a person's life when he makes up his mind to be himself, to do his own work, to fill his own special niche, and to follow God's unique plan for him. Emerson said, there is a time in every person's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide and that he must take himself for better or worse as his own portion. The divine architect never hands down two blueprints exactly alike. God's plan for you is not His plan for me. And God's plan for you, me, is not His plan for you. Have you noticed how many times in the New Testament that the writers of the New Testament talk about the fact that men have different gifts 
And God uses every person to serve Him in a unique and different way. Second lesson. The habit of constantly watching others inhibits our Christian and spiritual growth. I mean, I'm working hard in the church. I'm coming to visitation every Monday night. I wish he would. I'm giving a 10% of my income, and he, doesn't, he, he never gives. And the longer we fix our eyes on what others are doing, the longer it's going to take us to mature in spiritual growth. Someone said that some people make the world and the rest just come along and live in it. But our responsibility is to go on doing what God has laid on us to do. And as long as we're concerned about what others are doing or not doing, we will never grow spiritually. My grandfather, I remember, I was just a kid, of course, but I remember when my grandfather used to work a team of horses. I was a wee baby. Before the invention of the tractor, the wheel. <laughs> but I remember my, my granddad had a horse he had to put blinders on. I've seen them in, sometimes watching the races on television. Horse races. Notice I said television. I, I've seen it on television. Hadn't been there myself. But some of these horses, they have to have blinders. You know why they have to have blinders? Because they lose the race looking at the horse next to them. I actually saw that happen in a race, a major race one time. At this horse, these two horses coming down to the finish line, neck and neck, and one horse with his head turned, checking out the horse beside him, missed the tape by a nose and lost the race. Some of us need some blinders. So that we want keep our eyes on others. Third, I think our Lord's rebuke to Simon Peter is an appropriate rebuke to those who say they'll never become a Christian because of the hypocrites. I would be a Christian, but some Christians have let me down. Um, I, I have a feeling that there are people tonight, if they would, had television turned on at Channel 7, would have to admit that they have rejected Christianity and their excuse is, is that they're too many hypocrites in the church. Wrote Charles Brown of Yale, you speak of religion to some men and all, he can, all they can think of to say is some silly quibble. You mention the church and his mind is off like a rat to drag out some moth-eaten story about an unworthy deacon. You wish to show him the well that is deep, and he merely jumps up and down in the puddle of his own conceit to splash you with mud. How pitiful it is 
how pitiful it is. I went into the um, hospital room one time of a man out in Tulia, Texas, and I was uh, visiting. I heard he wasn't a Christian. I went in there to talk with him and share the gospel with him. Wasn't five minutes into the interview, and he started talking about the hypocrites in the church and how he'd never set foot in another church. and He wouldn't bear, dare be caught as a, uh, in a church because these hypocrites, and on and on he went. And I just let him go on for a little bit and finally I kind of called time out and said, what do you got against Jesus? He said, say what? I said, what do you got against Jesus? He said, well, I don't have anything against Jesus. I said, well, he's the one you're to follow. I said, let me tell you, you find out something about Jesus that's bad or wrong, then you let me know and I'll quit with you. But unless you can find something wrong with Jesus, you just need to follow Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with Simon Peter. He's saying, Simon, do you love me? I mean, what do you think about me? Do you think, can you think of anything wrong with me? If you can't find anything wrong with me, if you love me, then follow me. Keep your eyes off someone else. Has anybody ever walked up to you and said, what is that to you? I mean, has our Lord ever confronted you to say, forget about anything or anybody else what they have that you don't have? For the essence, watch this, for the essence of Christianity is a person following Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the invitation to follow you will be an invitation each of us would accept. This is my prayer in Jesus' name for his sake. I want to ask you tonight, there might be, an in, there might be some, someone who would like to come to give his life, her life, to Jesus Christ. Come and follow me, he said. Or perhaps there's someone who would like to join this church tonight. We give you that invitation, encouragement. We want you. We need you. Lord, to rededicate your life to Christ. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.